Father, we do thank you for laughter. We thank you for joy. We thank you, Lord, for this season in which joy is proclaimed because you have sent your Son into this world to save us from our sins. And, and Lord, Jesus has come not only to lead us down the right path, but he is the path. And Father, I pray we would find ourselves in him and, uh, and on him today I, in that sense. Father, I pray, Father, that you would sanctify our hearts, convict us of our sins, remove them far from us, and give us a zeal for your righteousness, a zeal for, for wanting to, to glorify you through obedience. Lord, make yourself just completely precious to us this morning. Show us how wonderful you are through your word. And, and, and Lord, show us how to respond to how wonderful you are. Uh, because we need that as much as anything. Um, Father, speak your word through me, uh, despite me, and be glorified in the next few minutes. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, beloved, if you'll turn with me again to Luke 17, we are... There again, we started this chapter last week. We saw Jesus turn his attention away from the scribes and Pharisees and back to his disciples. Uh, it's those who were learning from him, those who were seeking to follow him and, and, and believe in him. And we saw Jesus, he, he began to share some ways in which we share life together. Um, not ways we can share life together or should share life together, but ways we must share life together. If we belong to him, uh, even when there is sin. We saw a couple things. First, that we aren't to lead others into sin. We are not to lead others into sin. That sounds obvious, but it's harder than it looks because if we're children of God, we do have to have the same mind towards sin as our Father. We are to love him with all of our heart, soul, and mind. And that means we are to hate sin with all of our heart, soul, and mind. And too often we don't do the latter, which means we're not doing the former. We have to have the same mind towards sin as, as, as the Father does. In fact, that ties into the passage we read at the beginning of our service, that we are to be holy like the Holy One who has called us. We have to have a holy attitude towards sin. And not just not leading others into sin, but we've got to lead others out of sin when we can. We must lead others out of sin because they are already there. You know, you already sin. I already sin. So it's our duty as brothers and sisters in Christ to try to pull each other out of our sins when we see each other in them. By the grace of God, by the word of God, we must grab those brothers and sisters we love by the scruff and pull them out of the darkness and back toward the light. We are to bring the word of God to bear on one another's lives. And we saw that last week. We're going to see more of it today. Uh, not to make ourselves look better, we saw that. You know, not not to not to uh, judge other people, not to hurt other people, but always so that we can be reconciled toward one another, and ultimately toward God. And to that end, it means we must forgive. We saw that very clearly. We'll see it more today. We have to be willing to forgive, and then actually forgive when we're sinned against, just as God in Christ has forgiven us in what he had in, in the worst trespasses of our hearts the worst things we've ever done god forgives them in christ ephesians 4:32 and so we must be willing to forgive others as well and we're going to continue to see that today as we kind of take a half step back so that we can move forward in the text 
We're going to read verses 1 through 10 today. We covered 1 through 4 last week. We'll cover through verse 10 today, but let's read the whole thing in context so that we can prepare ourselves for what God has to say to us. He, Jesus, said to his disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that, than that he could, would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat, and properly clothe yourself, and serve me while I, while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink? He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, We are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Now at first glance, even if you read through all ten of these verses a few times, it may appear that the last six verses don't have much to do with the first four. In fact, going through this the first time as I was planning through sermons, my first reaction to this ten-verse passage was to break them up into two or three because I was thinking that these seem to be looking, dealing with two or three different subjects here. But the more I thought about it and the more I thought through it, really they belong together. Jesus seems to change the subject from chapter 16 to 17. And upon first glance, it may seem to us that Luke is kind of throwing some various sayings of Jesus out there to, to kind of transition from one thing to another. But God doesn't put anything in His Word by accident. And God hasn't placed anything where it is in His Word by accident. We believe that all Scripture is breathed out by God. And it is purposeful. And it will not return void. God never reveals Himself haphazardly, without purpose. So these verses do belong together. And to see that, we have to inch back into verses 3 and 4, really, where we see a command to forgive. We saw this last week. We need to see it again today. A command to forgive. Jesus gives His disciples an unequivocal command to follow Him and to forgive others. He says, be on your guard. In other words, be alert. Keep your eyes open that you are doing this. Pay attention not only to yourself, but to your neighbor as well. You think, well, why am I supposed to pay such close attention to my neighbor, to my brother? It's not so that you can stick your nose where it doesn't belong. In fact, Scripture says that we aren't supposed to stick our noses where they don't belong. But what Scripture does say is that if your brother sins, rebuke him. You know, your sin is my business and my sin is your business. And what Jesus is saying here to his disciples as they are sitting around listening to him is, your 
sins are your brother's business and they need to call the sin out of you. And we talked in, in, in some detail about this last week. And I made it clear and I want to just reiterate that we are never to do so with the purpose of winning. With the purpose of making the other feel bad. With the purpose of cutting people off. We are to speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15. And the purpose of calling out sin in someone else is always reconciliation. It's always so that there can be restoration, if at all possible. By the grace of God, maybe they'll stop sinning. And when they repent, we forgive and we forgive and we forgive. We are to always be forgiving. Because for one thing, I read this this week, I thought it was just fantastic. Uh, one of my favorite pastors to listen to and, and to read is a man by the name of John MacArthur. And he wrote about this passage. Forgiveness is the most godlike act a person can do. Forgiveness is the most godlike act a person can do. Jesus tells us, what does he tell us? He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Well, if we're not willing to forgive, it's hard to say we're willing to love. So if we are willing to forgive even those who sin against us, well, isn't that what the Father has done for us? Hasn't God forgiven those who have transgressed against Him even when we were His enemies, Christ died for us? So we have to forgive others also. Forgiving others shows our love for God. It shows our love for God. What does Jesus say? It says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And what does the sixth commandment say? You shall not murder. Well, we would all agree that you should not murder. But Jesus always, 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 always raises the bar for what it means to be his disciple. And as we know from the Sermon on the Mount, you shall not murder. There is more to that than meets the eye because he also says if you, you, know, if you hate someone in your heart, you know, you're murdering them in your heart. I'm paraphrasing. But Jesus was always raising the bar. And in fact, John, 1 John 3.15 says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. In other words, we are not allowed to carry hate with us. The New Testament makes it clear, as clear as... Glass that doesn't have fingerprints all over it. We cannot refuse to love our brother. We cannot carry on hating our brother. We cannot refuse to then forgive our brother, not if we claim to have eternal life. Because no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. If we don't forgive, it shows we don't love God. And it shows we don't understand what it means to be forgiven by God. So we forgive to love God. We forgive to obey God. We forgive because if we don't, it means we aren't fit to worship God. Do you realize this morning, if, if you refuse to forgive, it means you're not fit to worship God. Uh, again, we go to, to Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and then remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother 
and then come and present your offering. Now, we can't make people like us. We can't make people be nice to us. We can't make people be happy with us. And we can't make others forgive us when we do something wrong. We can't make people reconcile with us. I wish it were as easy as just saying it, if wishing made it so. We can't even make others be civil toward us. But there's a verse in Romans 12, and I've quoted it several times because I have to remind myself of this often. As much as it depends on us, we are to be at peace with all men. And we either take that seriously as Christians or we don't. And really, if we have the Spirit of Christ in us, we ought to always be striving for that. And if we don't, or if we won't, then how can we come before God thinking He will accept our worship? Thinking He will accept whatever offering we make? We may as well rename ourselves Abel because in our hearts we are wanting to kill our brothers. We are wanting murder in our hearts rather than to be right with God. So we have to be forgiving people if we're going to be fit for worshiping the one who's forgiven us. Also, you know, the Father forgives if we belong to Him, we'll do what He does. Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your conduct. If He forgives, we have to forgive. Another reason, this one's very practical, is that we've got to remember God is in control. We've got to remember that God is in control even of all of our circumstances. And so let's think highly enough of God to understand that. Let's think highly enough of God to understand sometimes He will take us through a trial. I've said many times from this pulpit, many times in the fellowship hall, many times, period, that God is either bringing you through a storm or he's bringing you out of a storm, or he's about to put you in a storm, because that's life. That's life on this earth. That's life before the glory. And that's why the apostle, well, not the apostle, James, the brother of Jesus in James 1, what does he say? Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If you want to be complete as a Christian, if you want to be being perfected as a Christian, if you want to look more like Jesus in your life, then understand that in the trials you face, many of those trials have to do with other people. And many of those trials are going to call upon someone else or upon you or upon multiple parties to forgive one another. And we can either trust God in those storms or we won't. So when we're offended, when we're sinned against, the mind of Christ will go in a different direction than holding a grudge or seeking revenge. Christ's likeness does not hold a grudge or seek revenge. Christ's likeness says, How will God use what is happening to me to glorify Him? Christ's likeness says, How can I grow in Christ here when I've been sinned against? When, when the issues between me and others seem too much to bear. How can I be more like Jesus now, how can I be more like Jesus in this situation? How can I, in the words of 
2 Peter 3.18, in this situation, how can I grow in the grace and knowledge of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Well, these are the questions we need to constantly be asking ourselves, beloved, when we are sinned against, when there is forgiveness that needs to be given and received. And it is indescribably hard. If forgiveness is the most godlike act a person can do, then we've got to understand it flies in the face of all of our sinful proclivities. So it is indescribably hard. In fact, it is downright impossible in and of ourselves. You and I, we don't have it in us in and of ourselves to forgive like this. Because I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all fleshly, we are all prone to place our priorities above others. We are all given to pride and responding pridefully when we are sinned against. And that makes it very hard to forgive. And even Jesus' apostles saw this. In this moment... They saw how hard and how practically impossible forgiveness was. So it's not just that we've been given a command to forgive. We also need to make of God a dangerous request. We need to make a dangerous request. Look again at verses 5 and 6. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. We've got to make a very dangerous request. This is a dangerous request. Now, let's, let's take a step back here. We're in chapter 17 of Luke, which means we're well into Luke. You know, we're, we're almost three-fourths of the way through this book now. I know, it's been a while, hasn't it? But uh, we're well into Jesus' ministry here. And, and as I've repeated many times at the beginning of, of sermons these past few months, it's been since Luke 9.51 that Jesus has been on this road to Jerusalem where kind of His Galilean ministry ends and, and He sets His face toward Jerusalem and He's been going through all these towns and villages as I've been saying, as Luke tells us. And He's been, what has He been doing? He's been performing miracles. And beyond that, He's been preaching and teaching the truth. He's been showing people that He is the way of salvation and that you have to surrender everything to Him. That it costs you everything to be His disciple. And, and, and the apostles here are mentioned specifically in verse 5. We're talking about the twelve here. We're talking about Peter, James, Andrew, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, Judas Thaddeus, Judas Iscariot, you go back to verse, or not verse, go back to chapter 6, that's where Jesus calls them, specifically to be his apostles. And so they had been with Jesus, they had been following Jesus, they had been seeing him do all kinds of things up to this point. What are some of the things they'd seen Jesus do with their own eyes? They had seen him heal the sick, he'd given sight to the blind, he'd given hearing to the deaf, he'd made the lame to walk, he'd cast out demons. He'd fed thousands upon thousands of people with basically nothing. And yeah, he raised the dead too, by the way. So they'd seen him do all of this. And so the apostles have that frame of reference to go by here. Think about all they've seen. 
They have a frame of reference for the power of God. They've seen the power of God in technicolor. In high definition, live and up close, they've witnessed the power of Christ upon human life. They've witnessed the power of Christ upon sinful human hearts. And still, when it came to Jesus telling them, forgive, that's what compels them to say to the Lord, increase our faith. Because they knew it's indescribably hard to forgive. They were making a very honest and a very humble request. They were asking that Jesus might give them that which they did not have enough. They weren't denying they believed in Jesus. They weren't denying they had faith at all. They did trust in Jesus. Well, all all but one of them. But to forgive like Jesus was now commanding them to forgive, they knew they didn't have enough faith. So they said... Increase our faith, supplement our faith, grow our faith, because we cannot reach your unreachable standard. We don't have enough for this. The apostles in, 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 in these short words were articulating something Paul would later say in 2 Corinthians 2.16. Who is adequate for these things? Who is adequate to live like Christ? Who is adequate to obey Him? Who is adequate... To, to deal with the trials and tribulations we face in this life? Who is adequate to forgive other people? Who is adequate to, to proclaim Him? Who is adequate to be His disciple? Who is adequate to have the strength to forgive? And the answer is no one. Which is why Paul in chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians says, Our adequacy is from God who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. God the Father, through His Son Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, makes us adequate for all He desires of us. Understand that this morning, beloved. God does not command you to do something that He will not give you the power to do through His Spirit. By His Word, by His grace. God does not command... That's why 1 John 5, 3 says the commandments of God are not burdensome because He will give you the power to do what He's commanding you to do. Or as Peter puts it in 2 Peter 1, He has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. He's given you everything you need for eternal life and to live godly now even to forgive. Even to forgive people we can't fathom forgiving. Increase our faith. Increase our faith, please, Lord Jesus. Increase our faith. But we've got to be careful what we ask for because we just might get it. How did Jesus respond? If you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to the mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. Jesus did not dismiss their request. He affirms it by using an analogy to teach them about faith. And as you might know, the mustard seed was the smallest seed they would have been familiar with in Israel. And this isn't the only time Jesus uses the mustard seed to make a a point. What is the kingdom of God like and to what shall I compare it? We saw that 
in Luke 13, verse 18. It is like a mustard seed, he said, which a man took and threw into his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. What Jesus was saying in that parable we looked at way back when is that the kingdom of God may have small beginnings, but it's going to have explosive growth and exponential power because I am exponentially powerful. You know, mustard seeds, they, they grow up to 15 feet in height out of a very little, very, very little seed. And his, his analogy is not altogether different here in Luke 17. If you have a mustard seed worth of faith, he's saying, if you have just a, the smallest, incy, beansy, teeny, weeny amount of faith, you can do amazing things beyond your own capacity. You can do... Uh, rather, God can do through you exceedingly abundantly more than you can ask or imagine. The mulberry tree, in contrast to the mustard plant, had this very extensive root system. So uprooting one is no small thing. And of course, Jesus is not speaking literally here. He's not saying if you just believe enough, if you just name it and claim it, you can go out and literally tell Mount Mitchell... Get out of the way. Sometimes when we're traveling west, we like to say that. Jesus isn't saying that. He's not saying if you believe enough, you'll have financial riches. He's not saying anything like that. He's saying something much better than that. If you entrust yourself to Him, you will have supernatural power to do what you can't do in your own strength. That's what he's saying. And the apostles, the more they heard Jesus say this, the more they began to grasp what it means to be a disciple, to forgive to the utmost. And it humbled them and it brought them to this point where they make this dangerous request, increase our faith. A humble request because that's where true power lies. True power is found in humility. Because that power comes from God. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. He who humbles himself will be exalted. He who exalts himself will be humbled. Beloved, perhaps this morning it's you who believing in Jesus needs to come humbly to him and say, Lord, increase my faith. Help me to forgive. There's a command to forgive. A dangerous request for faith. Finally, a duty to uphold. Look at verses 7 through 10 again. Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him, when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink? He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded, you say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. And what this is, is it's a warning against pride. It's a warning against self-righteousness. Because we've seen this in Luke, and we'll see it again. The scribes and Pharisees opposed to Jesus were all about receiving the praise of men. They dressed the part. They stood up in the synagogue. They said the long prayers. They wanted the seats of honor at the banquets. 
In Luke 20, Jesus is going to flat out, and we're going to see this for not too long, they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. So Jesus tells this parable as a warning to His apostles, but really it's to everyone who belongs to Him. Don't do what God's commanded you to do. Don't do what Jesus has commanded you to do as a matter of pride. Don't do it expecting something extra. After all, our salvation, all that is good that we have, all that is is good that happens to us, it is ultimately by the grace of God. It's God bestowing on unworthy sinners like us that which we do not deserve. And here, you know, if you are a Christian, it's because God, through the sacrifice of His Son, has freed you from your sins. You were a slave to sin before God freed you from your sins. Do you realize that? You were a slave. Romans 6, Our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For He who has died is freed from sin. We were slaves to sin. But when God saved us through His Son, we became slaves to Christ, slaves to Jesus, slaves to righteousness. And that's not a bad thing. It's a very, very good thing. Think, how is it a good thing to be a slave, period? Hasn't Christ freed us? Yes, He's freed us to follow Him. He's freed us to be His slave. Let's not think of the word slave in just 21st century American lens it through through let's not just look we've got to look at this through first century jewish lenses it's it's a bit different to understand this it's a bit different And, and and why because slaves in first century israel were oftentimes better off and sometimes much better off than free men what do i mean by that well free men unless you were a noble of some sort they tended to be day laborers. They tended to live hand to mouth. We saw in the parable of the prodigal son, it, it, it should not go unnoticed in that parable, often it does, that the father gave his day laborers, those who worked for him, more than enough bread. Because norm, That's a big deal because normally day laborers lived hand to mouth day to day. Uh, but, but the prodigal son's father made sure they had more than enough. Slaves were bound to service though. But that wasn't a bad thing necessarily because they didn't, that means they didn't want for food. They didn't want for, for shelter. They didn't want for, for warm clothing. Their masters met their needs. So the slave here is not in the worst position. The slave here is not in the same position as when we think about American history. And in Jesus' parable, the slave plows or tends sheep. His master would not tell him to come and sit down and eat. He'd say, prepare for me something to eat. Properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterward, you may eat and drink. Why? Because it's his job. It's his job. It's his duty. It's his responsibility. And the slave would have understood that he was fulfilling his responsibilities to his master. He wouldn't have expected special treatment just for doing his job. And so in verse 10, Jesus says, You too, when you do all the things which you are commanded, which are commanded you, say, We are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. And his point here is this humble people don't seek honor. 
Humble people don't do the things they're supposed to do for special treatment. We recognize our own unworthiness. We recognize that God owes us nothing and forgiving others does not make God indebted to us. It's just what we're supposed to do. Forgiveness is just what we are supposed to do. So whereas in the first century the plowing and the tending of sheep may have been the slave's yoke of service, if you are Jesus' disciple this morning, forgiveness is your yoke. Forgiveness is your duty. Forgiveness is a weighty portion of the cross we carry every day until we're with Christ. Forgiveness is the yoke of all who have been forgiven by God through His Son. And when we do this, when we trust in Christ enough to forgive even our enemies, beloved, that is true godliness. J.C. Ryle writes it like this, Faith is the hand with which the soul lays hold of Jesus Christ and is united to Him and saved. It is the secret of all Christian comfort and spiritual prosperity. Faith is the hand that lays hold of Christ. We need the faith to forgive. Increase our faith. And that has to be our holy ambition. Philip Graham Ryken conveys a story, and I'll close with this. In the winter of 1993, you may remember that around that time, it's in the aftermath of the Cold War, and much of Eastern Europe was very fluid. And a civil war broke out between the Croatians and the Serbs, and it, it went on for a long time. The Serbian fighters were known as Setniks, and they really wreaked havoc in uh, that area, in Croatia, what we know as Croatia. Uh, they would put people in concentration camps. They would uh, burn down churches, houses, rape women, destroyed cities. And it was at this time a, a Croatian theologian by the name of Miroslav Vov was teaching. And he was teaching about Christian forgiveness one day when it was put to him, can you, a Croat, Embrace a setnik. Can you, a Croat, embrace a Serbian fighter who is doing all these things to your people? And, and who, who at the time has to be the very definition of evil. Can you embrace a setnik? And Wolf, the, the, the Croatian theologian, had to face that question. Could he practice what he was preaching? Could he embrace someone who had done him and his people so much harm? I mean, stuff that we, we have a hard time wrapping our minds around. Could he forgive someone who had abused and betrayed his people? And it took him a long time before he gave an answer. And finally he said, no, I can't. No, I cannot. But as a follower of Christ, 
I think I should be able to. What was he saying? That human pain is very real. Heartache, betrayal, anger, hate, envy, slander, grudge. These things are all very real in our lives because sometimes we commit sins and sometimes we are sinned against. But here's the thing we've got to realize. We are the setnik. And yet Jesus has opened His arms to all who will come to Him. And if He is willing to do that for us, then how can we refuse to open our arms to the setniks in our lives? We cannot, but as followers of Christ, He will make us able to. That's what Miroslav Vov was saying. Increase our faith. Increase our faith that we may forgive just as you have forgiven us, Father. Father, if there be one here this morning who doesn't know you, who has experienced the joy of, or maybe who hasn't experienced the joy of, of knowing your forgiveness and receiving that gift of everlasting life, I pray this morning you might compel them to come to you. And for those of us who have come, Father, I pray you won't let us rest until we, your disciples, your slaves, whom you love and provide for, will do the duty of the godly and act like your Son. Increase our faith, Father. Help us to seek forgiveness from others and likewise open our arms to those who have wronged us. Increase our mustard seed of faith that we might know and show others the glory of your kingdom. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.